Chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning and considering it. So let's have a word of prayer before we get going, and then we can fellowship in the Scriptures together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again <coughs> for your amazing grace that threw our shackles in the sea and set us free. Free to serve you, free to glory in you, free to be satisfied in you, free to drink deeply at the well, free to know that we are loved, free to be loved by you, free to love you, and free to glory in you. And so help us this morning as we look at your word, as we hear what you say. Challenge us and encourage us with your truth. Draw us to worship you and be amazed again. In your name I pray, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, <coughs> starting in verse 8 through verse 13, Paul writes this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal but the word of God is not bound therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he will also deny us if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself Paul's writing to Timothy, <coughs> pastor, struggling, challenged. As we've said every week, Paul tells him it's just going to get worse. It's not going to get better, which is the way of things for people who are in Christ. Life is not easy. Life is hard. There's opposition. And the opposition isn't always outside the church. It's oftentimes inside the church as well. For Timothy is clearly inside the church. Timothy the pastor. And Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him in his second letter and to exhort him, to encourage him, and to challenge him. He starts out the book, as we've seen repeatedly, <coughs> reminding him of his faith that he's had. And Paul saying how he rejoices in the faith that he's had as evidenced in his life as Paul has known him. <clears throat> and it's the same faith that his grandmother and mother have had. And he hopes he still has, which, as I said a number of weeks ago, is an interesting statement. Because it's he who endures to the end will be saved, right? And so Paul is not now connected with Timothy. He doesn't see him, but he's encouraging him on. He knows that Timothy's facing a struggle, and so he reminds him of his own personal struggle. He reminds him of the battle he's faced and how hard it's been and the worthiness of it because of the worthiness of the object, Jesus Christ. He reminds Timothy to struggle well, to fight well, to glorify Christ because many are not. And he mentions at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 1 about those who are in Asia turning away from him. We're going to visit that again at the end of the study this morning. But there are some that stay, Right? You see Anesiphorus and Phygelus 
stayed with him. They stayed faithful. Onesiphorus especially ministered to him while he was in chains. Sought him out while in Rome. Chapter 2, verse 1, he reminds Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The implication being stay in Christ. Cling to Christ. That's where you find grace. It's in Christ Jesus. Stay close to him. Dwell with him. Cling to him. Drink from him. Eat from him. Continuously. And in light of that, what you receive from him, teach faithful men who will teach others also. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And then through those metaphors that we spend our time going through about the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. He concludes that in verse 7 by saying, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Referencing the metaphors, but also what comes afterwards. So he says, Think over what I say. That is, dwell upon, chew on, meditate on what I say, because if you do, you will have understanding. By the way, there's an implication I didn't mention when we were in verse 7 two weeks ago, and that is this. If you don't think over what I say, you'll not have understanding. If you don't carefully chew on what Paul says, he tells Timothy, you won't have understanding. That's the implication, isn't it? Because if you think about them, if you think on them, dwell on them, wrestle with them, chew on them, meditate on them, you will have understanding in everything. You will not if you don't. So it's important we see that. It's interesting that he says that in verse 7, think over what I say, because the very next thing he says is what? Remember Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. Remember Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. Remember him. Think on these things, and you'll have understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, when, we, when Paul tells Timothy, this pastor, remember Jesus Christ, he's not talking about a, a fleeting remembrance. You ever have that happen where something in the dusty recesses of your past pop into your brain? You ever have that happen to you? You haven't thought about it in a long time. You're just living life, doing something, and maybe there's a smell you smell. Or an activity you're doing reminds you of something. And you remember? It happens to me oftentimes if I'm working on a car. All of a sudden, you know what will happen? I'll have a flashback to somebody who taught me how to do that back at the camp I used to work at. I remember very clearly the first time I changed a starter. And every time I have to work on a starter, if I crawl underneath the car and even see a starter, hanging off the bottom side of a car. You know what happens? I'm back on that day at 28 below zero, and I'm laying on the ground outside trying to get a starter off a car as my friend and boss, Roy Tanner, is instructing me on how to get it off and how to put a new one on. It was a cold day. But I learned. I learned how to take off and put on a starter. And I remember Roy every time I see a starter. Really weird. I don't think about Roy that much. I don't. But I remember that. And I remember Roy at that point in time. That's not what Paul's talking to Timothy about. That's not at all what he means. He says, remember. 
Jesus Christ. He's not talking about that occasional something happens and Christ comes to remembrance. You see, I didn't have to try to think about Christ. Or, I'm sorry, try to think about Roy, did I? It just happened. It just happened. There's the starter, Roy. No starter, I don't remember Roy. It's a way of things for things in the distant, dusty recesses of our lives. But again, that's not what Paul aims for us to see here. Because verse 7 says, think on these things. Think about these things. Chew on these things. Wrestle with these things that I'm talking about. And God will give you understanding in everything. He's saying, be active in it. Be after it. Think about it all the time is the idea. And you'll have, you'll have understanding of everything. And right after he says that, he says, remember Jesus. Not a passive thing, an active thing. Let me give you the classic passive Jesus thing. Here's the classic passive Jesus thing. If you come to a, a Sunday evening service, and, and which happens in a lot of churches on Sunday evening services occasionally, and they say, tonight we're going to have testimony time. We'd like to hear your testimony. So anybody who'd like to share your testimony. And everybody in the room that's a Christian begins to think about what? The day they got saved. That's what they start to think about. Immediately they start thinking about the day they got saved, and they start thinking about their praying their prayer to Jesus. That's what typically happens. And so passively, they've been ushered into the dusty, re dusty recesses of their past, and they're remembering Jesus. But really all they're remembering ultimately is what they did, right? They're remembering the prayer they prayed. They're remembering the events of the evening. Maybe they're remembering the message they heard or the guy who's telling them the gospel. And then as soon as the service is over, or as soon as the time frame gets to the point where they're probably not going to even have time to share their testimony, what happens to that remembrance? It's gone, right? It disappears, not to be thought of again, typically, until next time on a Sunday evening, it's testimony time. And then we start thinking about that again, because it's been prompted to us. Right? It was a passive thing. It's kind of hard to avoid the thought about that moment in time when that's what the topic of the discussion is. Does that make sense? That's not what he's talking to Timothy about. Paul's talking to Timothy in the midst of opposition. Paul's talking to Timothy in the midst of kickback. Paul's talking to Timothy in the midst of, of oppression and some persecution. Hard times. And he says to Timothy, remember, when the reality is in those point in times, that's not what you naturally remember, is it? When you're getting opposed, when you're being rejected, when you're being mistreated and poorly handled, your natural tendency is to think about who? Yourself. 
your natural tendency, my natural tendency is to think about myself and to start to think about how I can escape, right? And avoid. And try to make life a little bit easier and more comfortable. That's the natural way of things. What Paul tells Timothy here, and I want to remind you, just not as a pastor, although he's a pastor, but more as a believer who is a pastor, who is the example for those who are not pastors, not elders, because we're all to live this way. He says to Timothy, this is the precise time to do what? Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you. You've heard me say this over and over and over again. Most times I talk to people who claim to be Christians, and if I ask them the question, tell me everything you know about Jesus, you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it many, many more times, is the idea that after about three minutes, the tumbleweeds start rolling through the room. And the reason why is because they're not what? They're not remembering Jesus. In the milieu of life, they're not remembering Jesus. So when they're asked, tell me everything you know about Jesus, let's revel in Jesus together, shall we? Let's be blown away by Jesus, shall we? They don't have to do with that. They just don't know. Why? They're not remembering Jesus. If you're not remembering Jesus, what's happening when you're, when you're going through difficulties? You're not remembering Jesus. You're trying to uh, avoid. You're trying to get back to the comfortable life. You're trying to get to what you determine you should be like and where you should be, versus Christ. That's what it tells Timothy, avoid this trap. Remember Jesus Christ. And when you remember Jesus Christ, you know what's going to happen? He's going to give you understanding in everything. What does that mean, understanding in everything? Well, in context, what does that mean for Timothy? Remember Jesus Christ, and as you remember Jesus Christ, you'll understand everything with regard to persecution. You understand everything with regard to oppression. You understand everything with regard to rejection. You understand everything with regard to hatred. You understand everything with regard to difficulty. You understand everything with regard to jail. You understand everything with regard to beatings. You understand everything with regard to mocking. And by the way, understanding means glory in, in Christ in those things. One of the clear evidences that we're not remembering Jesus is when we're trying to avoid those very things. Do you realize that? We're not rem remembering Jesus, so we're saying, I'm going to avoid those potential danger zones. I'm going to avoid them so that I can have an easier, more comfortable, Steve life. Classic evidence. Remember Jesus Christ. Dwell on him. Cling to him. Know him. That's interesting. I, as I talk to a lot of Christians about this, one of the statements I oftentimes get is, well, how much can you know about him? What's there to know? He's my savior. He died on the cross for me. He paid for my sin. He's returning. 
He's king. What else is there to know? Okay, he did miracles. He was on this planet. He was born of a virgin. He died. He rose again. He's returning. What else is there to know? I mean, I just basically summed up what a lot of Christians know. And by the way, a lot of non-Christians know too. So the question is, when we hear Paul tell Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, it's kind of like when we hear that phrase, it's kind of like you're telling me, if I'm going to use the illustration since I was at a race last week, you're telling me to run a race, but I don't even know what direction to go. I don't know where the starting line is. I don't know where the finish line is. You didn't tell me anything, Paul. You just said, remember Jesus Christ. I don't even know how to start that process. I don't even know what it looks like to really be remembering Jesus Christ. I don't even know what to do with that. And if you're saying that, or if you find yourself when you live your life being that way, okay, I need to remember Jesus. When when the Spirit breaks into your life and says, you need to remember Jesus, you're not remembering Jesus, you lost track of him. You're like, yeah, you're right. Please forgive me, I need to remember Jesus. You don't know what to do next? And so often, people who, are, who say they're Christians fall tr- into that trap of struggling that way. Paul doesn't even leave Timothy at that point. He doesn't just say, remember Jesus. That's not what he says. He said, remember Jesus Christ. That's not all he says. Notice what he says next. Remember Jesus Christ. Notice what he says next. Risen from the dead, offspring of David as preached in my gospel. He just gave Timothy. Paul just gave Timothy a whole toolbox to discover Christ in those three little phrases. It's interesting, though, that Paul did not unpack it any further than that. And this morning, I'm not either. I'm just not. And you know why I'm not? Because it's your task too. And it's my task too. But I do want to identify what he says. One of the things I'm struck by, if I may go there first, one of the things I'm struck by, by a statement, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, and then he says, as preached in my gospel. I'm struck by that statement on several levels, but one major level. And this should be nothing new to you here today. But here's what I'm struck by. When he says, as preached in my gospel, if you listen to most gospel preachings today, it's not primarily about Jesus. It's not primarily about the offspring of David. As a matter of fact, offspring of David themes don't even show up in the Gospels that are given out today very much at all. Are they? Any of you ever, when you got saved, you heard the Gospel, you got saved, did the guy or girl telling you about the Gospel talk about the offspring of David in any way, form, or fashion? Nothing, right? I mean, nothing. What did you hear? You heard, you're a sinner, right? Right? That's appropriate. 
you heard, because you're a sinner, you're going to hell. That's true, right? That's appropriate. You heard Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's true. That's appropriate. And then you heard, except Jesus is your heart, and your heart is your Savior, which we're not going to wade into that one right now. But you get my point. There's no offspring of David stuff in there. And, and there's almost no risen from the dead in that either, is there? Almost none of that. For Paul, the gospel is very Christ-centered. Do you see that? It's not you-centered. It's not me-centered. It's incredibly Christ-centered. That's Paul's gospel. I expect if we heard Paul, if we were there and heard Paul preach the gospel somewhere, like in the Temple of Diana or somewhere else, we would probably scratch our head and say to ourselves, was that the gospel? Was it? That doesn't sound familiar to me. Because you know what Paul talked about? He talked about Christ. So we've sliced and diced the gospel of Jesus Christ, for example, with like the Romans road. We've sliced and diced it to, and yanked out a couple of verses that are very man-centered verses out of its context. And we've created something called, I'm choosing it as an example. It's not just, I'm not picking on Romans Road, I'm choosing it as an example. And presented it as if it's the full gospel. You know what Paul did? He preached Christ and him crucified, risen again. Offspring of David. You know what Peter preached? Christ, crucified, risen again. Offspring of David. Gospel. That's what he did. It's a dramatically different gospel than what is preached so often. So that to me is striking. Paul expected that as he preached Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead, offspring of David, that the Spirit would do something dramatic in people's lives and change someone, make them alive so that they longed for Jesus. You realize that? That's what he expected. And he expected that Christians would be, as a result, enthralled with Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. Because that's the truth that saved them. And that's the one who saved them. And so what Paul, in effect, is telling Timothy, who, by the way, interestingly enough, is a pastor, an elder, mature in the faith. Teaching faithful ones about how to be mature in the faith. And his, and by the way, his way of teaching, teaching them to be mature in the faith is not don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It is Christ, him crucified, resurrected, offspring of David. 
And so what we have is this mature pastor being reminded by the apostle what he needs to remember more than anything else. Whether life is good in the church or life is bad in the church. Whether life is a struggle for him, whether life isn't a struggle for him. No matter what, for him it was a struggle. No matter what, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. Those striking three little phrases. And by the way, the word Jesus Christ is as well, because Christ means what? Messiah. So what Paul is trying to get Timothy, it's like this, these few little phrases from Paul to Timothy is this. Have you ever used an old pump, an old hand pump for water? If it hasn't been used in a long time, what do you have to do? And you prime the pump by pouring some water into the pump, right? And when you pour some water into the pump, the gasket down there begins to seal, and you start to pump, and up comes water, right? Unless you drilled in a really bad place. Um, water comes up. That's what Paul expects for Timothy, and, and afterwards, because it's an inspired text, the reader of 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13, specifically verse 8 and 9, that the reader of this text would say, huh? What exactly do I know about this person, Jesus? See, this is what this is. His statement here is like pouring water in a, in a, in a pump. Paul does not expound on it at all, does he? There's no expounding on it. He just primes the pump for Timothy. The idea is he's saying, Timothy, this is the categories. These are crucial categories for you to remember. What does it mean that he's Jesus? What does it mean he's called the Christ? What does that mean in all of its flavor, in all of its color, being fully well-rounded? What does that mean? The implication is for Paul, when he, or for Timothy, when he hears that, is that he goes and reviews. Goes back to the Gospels. Begins to study the Gospels again. To be reminded of who this Jesus, this Christ is. And for Timothy, Paul's intent is to say, remember Jesus Christ the risen one. Well, what are all the ramifications of him being risen? When was the last time, other than just Easter, that we really have thought significantly about Christ the risen one? The ramifications of that are unending. The, the roots that flow out of the truth of Christ the risen one they, they, they intertwine every aspect of the believer's lives. They are, you are, if you are a believer, you are thoroughly intertwined by the truth that he is the risen one. Our task is to understand it. Now, I can't understand how someone rises from the dead. 
can't understand that. That's not possible. I've never seen it. It is possible because it's happened supernaturally. But, I mean, it's not possible for me to have seen it at this point in time. To, to, to talk to someone. I've not talked to someone physically who's risen from the dead. Have you? No. That's not the point. The point is to think about or to remember the one who's risen from the dead is to remember all of the implications of the resurrection. To understand all the, the realities of the resurrection. What is the result because of the resurrection? How does the resurrection affect me? What is the meaning to the resurrection? You know, Paul talks everywhere about the resurrection. He talks about it constantly. Philippians 3, you preached on it last week a little bit. You touched on it last week, didn't you? The power of his resurrection. There it is. There it is. Paul wants Timothy, at this late stage of his life, as a mature believer, to not slow down in his remembrance. To not grow cold, to grow lax in his remembrance. The one who's resurrected from the dead and all the implications. Because realistically, if there are no real implications to his resurrection, then who cares? Right? Okay, he resurrected from the dead. Okay, so what? Who cares? What are the implications? Can I just give you a little, a little encouragement? There are more implications to the resurrection than you in your lifetime will comprehend. Do you realize that? There are more ramifications to the resurrection than you will comprehend in this single lifetime that you have. It is a lifetime, lifetime pursuit. And you will be blown away. That's Paul's point to Timothy. You will be blown away by the glory of Christ as you remember the risen one. As you remember the ramifications, the power of the resurrection, the ramifications of what it means that he walked out of the tomb and never, ever re-entered it. When you start wrapping your mind around that, you will, by the way, only be able to remember supernaturally by the power of the Spirit. But we are active in pursuing that. Remember Jesus Christ. Hope that wasn't me pushing the button on my car. It'll go off eventually, right? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. He is the risen one. What are the implications? Number two, remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. You know, for Paul, you know what he's saying? He's saying there's something really significant there. In fact, he's not just saying there's something really significant there. There are some things really significant there in a study of what it means that he's the offspring of David. In both of these statements, as well as the third, you know what he's saying? He's saying, in effect, these things, these statements are actually fields with buried treasure in them. 
of amazing wealth. Amazing wealth. For you, by the power of the Holy Spirit within you, to explore, to learn, to grapple with, to discover, to enjoy, to be satisfied by. I'm I'm a somewhat of a student of the gold rushes in America. I, I it may come as a surprise to some of you, but I've always been intrigued by the various gold rushes. And one of the things I've always found intriguing is people who have found a gold vein in the old west. They discover a gold vein and You've seen the pictures in movies, probably, the old Western movies. If someone discovers a big nugget of gold, what do they do? What's the first thing they start doing, typically, in the movies? What then? They're jumping up and down. They're shouting. They're dancing. They're all jacked up. They're fired up. Then what do they start doing right away? They start looking for more. Don't they? They start looking for more. Outside of Leadville, Colorado, there's a guy, I'm pulling a blank on his name right now. <coughs> he started digging a mine. And he struck it rich. In fact, the gold vein he found was the richest gold vein of Leadville, Colorado. 1800s, late 1800s. Absolutely the richest gold vein ever discovered in Leadville, Colorado. Leadville, Colorado brought more gold in the 1800s during the gold rush than any other town in Colorado, any other area of Colorado. I mean, he scored it rich. Got married to a local prostitute and uh, they worked the mine. He hired a bunch of people and they were pulling out all this gold, just boatloads of gold. And he was spending it as quick as he could pull it out. How he could spend it all in that day, I don't know. But he was spending as quick as he could pull it out. And you know what happened? The vein ran out. And when it ran out, he had nothing except for the title to this empty vein. And he had a bunch of other ones as well that kind of petered out as well. And as he aged, he kept on digging and kept on digging and kept on digging. He had a little shack he was living in. He was a multimillionaire of that day. It's like a billionaire. He's like he was like the Bill Gates of that day financially. You go to Denver, Colorado to this day, and you'll find all sorts of buildings that he built. And if you go up to up to Leadville, Colorado, the, the Main Street, mostly he built. But now he's a pauper. And he kept digging. And he kept digging. And he kept digging. And eventually he got old. He and his wife were living in this little shack. And he died. His last words to his wife was, sell every other vein, but don't sell that one. Keep digging. He died in the 1930s, still digging. Never found a thing. I've always been struck by that. Because here's someone who is in pursuit of gold and never found any more. And yet she kept on going and kept on going and kept on going. We have found a never-ending vein.
haven't we? Never exhaustible. Never. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Or I'm sorry, Paul's talking about here, about Jesus. For that man and that woman, their consuming passion, if I may use the term from our Sunday school lesson, their consuming passion was to find the gold in the earth. And they died trying. And died paupers. Nobody even found her body for six months after she was dead. We have a, a vein, as it were, that promises never to run dry. Never. Always satisfy. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead, offspring of David. And the idea of these two statements, risen from the dead, offspring of David, are like part of that vein. That's what it is. It's part of the vein that never runs dry. Dig, Paul is saying. He says, remember, dig into the vein. When you're, when, when you're dealing with frustrations, difficulties, struggles, rejections, mockeries, persecutions, dig. Dig into the vein. Because as you remember Jesus like that, everything begins to change. In effect, what Paul's telling Timothy, don't ever put the pickaxe down. Always be swinging the pickaxe. Always be drilling the holes. Always be placing the dynamite. Always be moving the wheelbarrow. Always discover the vein. And the amazing thing is, he's told us where it's at. We're not taking shots in the dark. He told us where it's at. What has he told us? Well, he said, remember Jesus risen from the dead. Where do you learn about Jesus risen from the dead? The Gospels, don't you? Where do you learn of the offspring of David? The Old Testament and the Gospels, right? And where do you learn of Paul's Gospels? The Epistles. By the way, Peter's Gospel is the same as Paul's. The Epistles. So is John's. The Epistles. We could throw Acts in there as well because it's all three of those are very clearly in Acts. The book of Acts. You know, Paul told Timothy, when you read the scriptures, this is what you ought to be looking for. You realize that? This is what you ought to be looking for. This is what you ought to be probing for. This is what you ought to be grappling with because this will change everything you, Timothy. This will change everything for me, Steve. This will change everything for you, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, offspring of David. 
has preached in my gospel. Because if you remember these things, think over what I, I say, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He'll change. Let's not water it down. He will change how much? Everything. Everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And notice what he says next. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. So obviously, whatever Paul found, right? You get it? Whatever Paul found was what? What? Well, whatever, yeah, it, was, it resulted in hardship, didn't it? Whatever he found was worthy of suffering over. Correct? And by the way, he doesn't explain all of his sufferings here either, does he? Which means, here's another priming of the pump. Paul expects Timothy and you and I to say, what exactly did he suffer with regard to this? What did he find that the risen Lord offspring of David, Jesus Christ, how did he find that worthy? And what exactly was it, was it worthy regarding? We know a little bit of his sufferings, but the implication is meditate in that. Because it, it, it will help us to evaluate ourselves. Do we really remember? See, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm unwilling to speak of Jesus to an unsaved person because of the price? You know what that means? When I fear and let the fear control me, you know what that means? What does it mean? You said something there, Andrew. What does it mean? You don't find him worthy and you're not remembering, right? You're remembering, if you're not, by the way, if you're not remembering him, you're remembering what? You. That's what you're doing. You're remembering you. And Paul, in effect, is saying, no, 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 this is not you time, Timothy. You time was pre-salvation. Correct? This is not you time anymore. This is Christ time. Remember Jesus. And he'll give you understanding in everything as a result. So if we're, if we're fearing or if we're refusing, whether it's ministering to another believer or ministering to an unsaved person, if we're refusing or cowering, it's because we are remembering something else. That's what that means. Paul's perspective, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. He's being treated as a criminal. And his, his response, Christ is worthy of that. The risen one is worthy of that. Not because it's some sort of mantra. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. But because of the intricacies of that. I always chuckle when I hear, this is an aside, but I always chuckle in a way when I hear Christians say, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, God is good. Someone else will respond all the time. I've heard that so many times by believers. I say, how is he good? Help me. How is he good? Exactly. Do you really believe he's good all the time? What about 9-11? 
Is he really good all the time? What about when your loved one died? Was he good? How is he good? And I find Christians oftentimes are like, because it's just become a mantra. It's become a phrase that we say. We have a lot of those. You know, he's good all the time. He's worthy. God is great. God is wonderful. Those things are all true. Right? They're all true. But when push comes to shove, we stand with our pants down, so to speak. Totally exposed. Because we have no answers for what that is based upon. We have these nice little cutesy phrases that are based on nothing. Except we heard somebody else say them at one point. I hope you say God is good all the time. But I hope it's based on something. Because that's the point. And that's the point here. He's saying, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, has preached my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Life is hard. I'm in chains. I've been beaten. I'm a criminal. And for Paul, it's not just an easy phrase, Christ is worthy. I bet if you ask Paul, how is he worthy, he'd say, how much time do you got? You think? How much time do you have? Let's have a seat. Let's talk. And I suspect that Paul would never run out of things to say, and not because he was verbose in his words, but because he just his, his heart was brimmed up with Jesus, risen from the dead, offspring of David, gospel. What's interesting for Paul, his focus, I find this very intriguing, his focus is not on his chains or his imprisonment, is it? The focus in the text is what? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a prisoner in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. There's Paul's focus. But the word of God is not bound. What's Paul talking about? It's not some theory for him, is it? What he's talking about is they can put me in chains, they can beat me, they can imprison me, they can treat me like a criminal. They can't stop the gospel from flowing. They cannot shut off the fountain of living water. They cannot stop the bread of life from being distributed. They can't. I personally, physically am bound. They cannot thwart the resurrected Christ, the offspring of David. So Paul, in the midst of a horror, illustrates for Timothy, in all of his difficulties in the church, the word of God is not bound. The implication of Timothy is you have nothing to fear. The word of God's on the march. The kingdom of God's on the march. Christ is on the march. Remember Jesus Christ. As a result of that, Paul says in verse 10 and, and following, he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When he says he endures everything, first of all, he means there's nothing that is unworthy of enduring. There's no place, there's no point when with regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ, with regard to Jesus Christ, there never comes a line that says, I will go this far, no further. For Paul, there is no statement that says, Jesus Christ is worthy of me suffering up to this point. The gospel is worthy of me proclaiming it up to this point. But I won't step over that line. There is no line for Paul. You know what the line is for Paul, if there's any line at all? Death. That's it. Death. If he has to suffer, he'll suffer. If suffering comes, he'll suffer. That's why he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's working out death in me, but life in you. And he says, in effect, I'm okay with that. Because he's caught up in the risen one. Joshua and David. That's what he's caught up in. And so for Paul, I suffer everything. Because when I compare any suffering that I may face, rejection, ridicule, mocking, hatred, abuse, physically, emotionally, imprisonment, being treated and labeled as a criminal, no matter what I consider, as I look at it in light of Jesus, the risen one, the offspring of David, and all the ramifications of that, this stuff looks like nothing. It's nothing. What do I have to fear when I'm loved by God? What do I have to fear when I'm adopted as a son? What do I have to fear if the one who loves me is the risen one? And all the ramifications that come with that. What do I have to fear? And so for Paul, there's no fear. That's why when they said, don't go to Rome, they'll kill you, he said, so? It's so matter of fact, so? Don't talk about this anymore. If I die for the cause of Christ, that's great. I've suffered all along. If I die, that's great. I'm okay with that. He appeals to Rome knowing what's going to happen. He knows it's going to happen. He does it anyway. Why? Because fear isn't there. Because there's no room for fear. Why is there no room for fear? Because there's only room for the risen one. There's only room to remember the offspring of David. There's only room for that. No room for fear, for self-protection, for self-preservation. No room. There's only room for Christ. And so he's willing to suffer everything. And therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And by the way, I would argue that when he says for the sake of the elect here, he's not just talking about unsaved people who will be saved. But he's also talking about those who are saved. He's on both sides. He's suffering for those who are unredeemed but will be redeemed. 
He's suffering for those who are redeemed that they will what? Grow in Christ. And they'll remember Jesus. He's suffering on both sides. That they also may obtain ultimately the salvation that is in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He does everything. Can I just pause on this one for a second and just ask a simple question? What are you willing to endure for the sake of the elect? Both those who are lost and those who are saved. Because if you're saved, you're, you're elect, right? If you're unsaved, if someone's unsaved, they may be elect. We don't know. We can't, we don't know God's plan. They may be elect. What are you willing to suffer? the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It concerns me. It concerns me that oftentimes Christians are not willing to suffer much of anything. Not willing to suffer much of anything. And sometimes I wonder, it sets my mind to wondering, what does that mean? They're not willing to suffer much. What does that mean? It should cause our mind to think, shouldn't it? What does that mean if, if a Christian, someone who claims to be a believer, isn't willing to endure suffering? And by the way, endure there does not mean, well, if it comes, I'll just kind of <sighs> endure it. That's not what the word endure means. You know what the word endure means here? It means be steadfast under it. To be steadfast. To remain unshaken. To continue the same way you were before you were suffering. To have the same zeal, the same passion, the same hope, same everything for Christ. That the situation that we find ourselves in does not alter our hope, our drive. That's what he means. That's what it means when he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I remain steadfast. And we see that, don't we, in his life? Do we not see that in Paul? Is it, when he's in prison with, with Silas, is he moping? Is he complaining? Is he griping? Is he throwing in the towel? No, he and Silas are singing hymns of praise. Isn't that interesting? And then with the prison guard who most likely beat him, when the jail cells swing open, he stops him from killing himself, and what does he do? He preaches about the risen one gospel of David. That's what he does. So the one that naturally he would hate, instead of doing what is natural, running away, escaping, which is what probably 99% of people would do, if not more, he stays. He stops him from killing himself. And by the way, the implication is he keeps the other prisoners in too. I don't know if you ever picked up on that one. And he tells about Jesus. Incredible. And that's just one snapshot. There are many others, as we know. 
his thought processes on Jesus. And secondly, it's on the elect that they would know Jesus with eternal glory. That they'll know him gloriously. That they'll obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And the implications of the eternal with eternal glory is multifaceted. Number one, obviously, that they will glory in him eternally. That they will be satisfied with him eternally. But they, they also, they will know him as glorious. Which takes us to verse 11, which as we get to 11 through 13, real, I'll be real swift here. As we get into 11 through 13, <coughs> there's two positives and two negatives we find here. It's important that we fold these into our story here. The saying, Paul says to Timothy, is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, we will, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. The saying is trustworthy for first positive. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we have died with him is referencing all the ramifications of our salvation. We died to sin. We died to the power of Satan and death over us. If the Spirit has done that in us, if we've died with him, he says there's a promise in this trustworthy statement. If we have died with him, what are the ramifications? We will also live with him. And that's just not referencing eternity in the future. It's referencing today. We will live with him. We will find our life hidden in Christ with God. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We will discover that our life is consumed in Christ and defined by Christ. And our life is from him. Everything is from him, through him, to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. If we've died, we will live. It's not possible, in other words, to die in him and not live in him. It's not possible to die with him and not live with him. Living with him means if we died with him, we will glory in him. We will remember him. We will live in the resurrected Christ, the offspring of David. That's what we will, we will find ourselves. We will live in the truth. It will percolate in us all the time. He goes on the second really positive encouragement. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. And I would argue both, both statements go together. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The idea is if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we've died with him, the result will be we will endure. If we truly have died with him, we will endure. So if we endure... We also reign with him. Now, I've heard a lot of Christians say, and endure again, is steadfast. I've heard a lot of people say that this idea of reigning with him is an enduring. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. It's talking about a special class of Christians. There are two different types of Christians. There's those who endure and those who, eh, they kind of flounder along. But they're saved and they get the glory. If not, as the phrase is, by the skin of their teeth, which is really gross, by the way. If that was really true, which it's not, who wants to do that? Why do you have skin on your teeth anyway? Mm. 
Anyway, whole different start study. But you get my point. When he says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him, the idea is if we endure, and we will only endure if we have died with him. Because if we've died with him, we will endure. Remember what he said in Philippians 1? If he began the good work in you, he will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's guaranteed. He will. So if, if we've died with him, we will live with him. If we've died with him, the result is we will endure. So if we endure with him, we will reign with him. In other words, anybody who has died with him will live with him. Anyone who's died with him will endure. And if they endure, they will reign. So the only people who reign are those who died with him. If you truly got saved, you will ultimately reign with him. But if you truly are saved, you will live with him. If you truly are saved, you will endure, if I, add it, if I may be gracious enough and liberal enough to add it in, with him. You will endure with him and for him. And the result is, ultimately, you will reign with him. Guess he has a package. The only people who reign are those who died with him. That's not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death, dying and living, being ra raised up. We were dead in our trespasses of sin. And then he makes us alive, Ephesians chapter 2. And as a result, we've died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. Whereas we were hidden in Satan, now we're hidden in Christ. And we live in him because we're grafted into the vine. And so we receive resurrection power. Ah, wait, remember the resurrected one, the risen one? Right? And we receive resurrection power. And if we receive resurrection power, we're alive. And if we're alive and we have re if we're receiving resurrection power, we're going to endure. As we endure, we will reign. Because remember, he who endures to the end will be saved. So the idea is if, and endure again means what? Be steadfast. Be steadfast in Christ, clinging to Christ, seeking him while he may be found, seeking with all your heart. And you know what happens? That steadfastness will result in and that's done by the power of the Spirit, result in reigning with him. On the negative side of the coin, he says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, I've heard all sorts of theological gymnastics on, on these next two phrases. But you know the old, the old hermeneutical principle, if the common sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense, lest it be nonsense? Here it is, in full display. If we deny him, he will deny us. What's he referencing? There's only one thing he can be referencing. If we deny him, in judgment, he's going to deny us. And the scriptures tell us that elsewhere, numerous times. If we deny him, he will deny us. Now, what about Peter? Well, Peter repented, didn't he? Have you denied him? I suspect you have. Has fear controlled you? The cost isn't worth it. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. Has that controlled you? That's denial. But if we repent, he forgives our sins and cleanses from all unrighteousness. But the idea isn't that we can repent and just keep doing it over and over and over again because repentance is a turning away from and turning to. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we deny that we know Christ, he's going to deny that he knows us. 
And if he denies we, he knows us, what does that mean? We're hellbound. It doesn't mean we lost our salvation. It means that we were people who played the game of Christianity, but we really weren't saved. We were like the first three, soil, th- first three seeds that fell on the various soils. We weren't like the fourth one. If we deny him, he will also deny us. In verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. I've heard so many Christians say, and so many theologians say, this text is saying if we're faithless, we're still, he'll still get us to heaven because he's faithful. That's not what this text says in context. If we're faithless, we're faith, faithless means we are blank in our trespasses and sins. Dead in our trespasses and sins. If we are faithless, and work it backwards like we did with, with uh, 11 in the first half of 12, Work it backwards. If we are faithless, it means we are denying him, right? If we're faithless, how could it be possible we're saved and faithless? That doesn't make any sense. Because faith comes from who? For by grace we are saved through faith. And that faith isn't, isn't mine. I didn't generate it. He gave it to me. If he gave it to me so that I could be saved, then there's no way I could find myself faithless so what does he say here in this negative statement he says if we are faithless and by the way paul uses the term we which is striking isn't it because who's he talking about when he says we him and timothy he says if we are faithless he remains faithful well how is he remaining faithful by the way, before we answer the question how, you'll notice he says because he cannot deny himself. So that introduces us to how we know how he's being faithful. If I'm faithless, he still remains faithful. What does that mean? It means I'm not going to heaven. I'm not going to be in glory with Jesus. Because he cannot deny himself. If I live faithlessly, if I live not remembering Jesus, if I, if I live not remembering the risen one, not thinking on, dwelling on, remembering, cogitating on, dwelling on, meditating on the offspring of David, Jesus the Christ. He remains faithless. Faithful to what? Faithful to what he's declared. Faithful to what he's declared. And what has he declared? If we refuse to repent from our sins, what happens? We'll be thrown into outer darkness. We'll be thrown into the fire. That's what the scriptures tell us. He remains faithful. He will not say, hey, Matt, really like you a lot. I know you're faithless, but you know what? Because I like you so much, you can come on in anyway. That's Christ being faithless. And I'm not singling you out for any reason, Matt. I just didn't want to pick on the people I typically pick on. Ken's sitting over there cowering in fear, just quaking. (laughs) That's Christ being faithless. Because then he said one thing and did something else. Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes on to the Father but by me. And so if you're faithless, 
He remains faithful. What does that mean? It means he'll always be true to himself. So he tells Timothy, remember Jesus. Dwell on Jesus. Remember the risen one. Remember the offspring of David, Timothy, even at this late date of your life. And he's speaking to himself. Paul, at this late date, and it's really late for Paul. Remember the risen one. Remember the offspring of David, which is why in 2 Timothy chapter 4, as he knows he's wrapping up his letter, he knows he's going to die soon, he says to Timothy, could you do me a favor? Come see me soon, because I need you to minister to me. If you come see me soon, what you do, bring the parchments. You know why? Because this late date, the Apostle Paul wants to remember Jesus Christ, the risen one, the offspring of David, the Messiah. For him, that is his life. And at this late date, he's facing almost imminent death. And for all he knows, the next day he's dead. He says, bring the parchments. I want to be reminded of Jesus. All that matters to me. Beatings aside, mockings aside, scourgings aside, prison aside, chains aside, being a criminal aside, old age aside, and everything else, he wants to know Jesus. If you're a believer, he's given you the Holy Spirit so you can know Jesus. If I could go right back to verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Funny how we always return to that, isn't it? Verse 7, think on these things. And you'll have understanding in everything. Let's pray. <coughs> we need you. We need you to work in our lives. We need you to work in us so that we remember Lord, help us, because we are too often recognizing that we don't know, that we don't remember. For too long, we have been sitting around acknowledging our lack of knowledge, our lack of remembrance, our, our lack of worship, our lack of honoring you as God, our lack of thankfulness, our lack of, of praising you, our lack of worship. And yet, day after day, week after month, year after year, decade after decade, we remain unchanged. We still don't remember. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us. Draw us to repentance. Draw us to remember. Because we know that the Jesus Christ that rose from the dead, the offspring of David, the Messiah, is one who brings life. The one who causes people to endure. The one who brings them to reign with you. And so, Lord, we ask that you do that in our lives. For your glory and your praise and your honor. In your name I pray. Amen.